As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and ever in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Cheryl Vance, current director and co-founder at Prideful Sloth. So join us as we explore our journey. So today I'm joined by Cheryl. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Very well. We were just discussing before the recording. We've, I guess we've been back and forth about this one for a little while because there was this little variable called some horrible floods up there in, in Queensland that kind of threw a spanner in the mix and and even the the variables of kind of coming back from remote work and those sorts of things. So it's been a while coming, but I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thanks for coming aboard. Oh, thank you for asking me. I'm very flattered. I appreciate it. No, it's, it's, it's awesome to have you on and I, I can't wait to dive into the story that you've kind of enjoyed so far. You've been involved in some fantastic titles and, and presumably more to come. So I look forward to chatting about that. But this is Dev Diary, a series where we talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journey that's led to this current point in time. But Cheryl, before we get to some of the awesome games you've worked on most recently, Grow Song of the Evertree, yeah. I wanted to rewind to the earliest point or some of the earliest points uh, where you interacted with games in a way and talk about some of the first games that you actually experienced do you recall what the first game was you ever played or some of the first games that you ever played oh yeah but I I mean I'm giving away my age a little bit probably but yeah oh man you know I I was there for the Atari 2600 so yep so I mean you know that's that's the thing you know it's games have been you know I'm I would say I'm probably kind of in that first generation where games were part of your daily life, the very start of that. So, so you know, I do remember a slight time before games existed in your daily life. But yeah, Atari 2600 and onward, it's been it's been there. So, and I mean, obviously the the available the list of available games was obviously much smaller back back then. But was there anything that really caught your imagination early on? Anything in particular? Um. Or was it just I, the novelty know, of having this box that plays yeah, games and I can... I think it was. I do remember some weird... Um, uh, well, I wouldn't say it's weird. Sorry, that's probably not the right word. But I remember picking up um, a NES when I was in uni because it was very cheap at the time and bought some cheap games with it. Um, and so I didn't really care what they were. It was just fun to have around. And I got a one that was some sort of stock trading game. and. Oh, yeah. God, it was hard as hell, but it was a really fun game. And that's that's probably one of the more um, outlier titles, I guess you could say, that I've played over time that really kind of, I still, I, I obviously quite remember it, you know, from from a little while ago and, you know, <laughs> but yeah. So, but I mean, I just remember, you know, from playing Centipede and buying, and then when the trackball came out and all those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, there's just, it's, uh, in terms of, I guess, really the weirdest things, it's probably more arcade games. And I okay. remember a Journey game from the band. So it was a Journey yeah, well, arcade game. Yeah, don't yeah, stop and, believing and all that. Yeah, the, the, yeah this, right. and apparently it was actually really ahead of its time because it did play track and played clips from their um, soundtrack from their um, albums. And so um, that was something that they had to set the arcade machines up to play. And so I remember running around as it. Um, 
Steve Perry, is that the lead singer? And you were running around yeah. shooting people with microphones and like, I don't, it was just a bizarre game, but that's probably of my early days. That's probably the other one that sticks out from the super early gaming days. Makes a lot of sense as to why that might be lodged in the brain, really. Yeah, yeah, and it's that's. I mean, that's a very bizarre, odd one. I don't know. It probably never made it out of the U.S. either, though. So it's probably something that you know, you had to be you know in the right place to have played it too. Yeah, no, but uh, I mean, still a really fascinating idea, and obviously there's lots of really weird and quirky games that kind of came out in that era where, I guess, things that for the most part people scoff at these days, but the core of them was still really solid. Like, yes, yeah. okay, it's you know, weird that we're shooting microphones or whatever the case happens to be, but often in some of these cases, and I won't necessarily speak to this journey one because I'm not, I, I can't say I ever tried it out, but yeah, there's usually like a really solid core to them. And, you know, it's yes, there's that first impression that people, you know, tilt the head a little bit and are a bit confused by, but you sit down and play them and they're usually really good experiences. Yeah, and I mean, I remember having fun with it. Um, at least, you know, at least, you know, um, the nostalgic, you know, rose glasses on. Oh, yeah. I, I remember playing it and enjoying it. But yeah, it's just, it's also kind of weird to consider that it was probably one of the more early, um, I actually wonder if it was one of the first band games done. I can't think of something that far back. So I don't know. Yeah, you see what I mean? Like, I can't think of anything. And so it may have been one of the first band games ever done. I don't know. Like yeah, nothing that's... really springing to mind. Yeah. Obviously, I mean, not so much a band thing, but like I can think of you know certain Michael Jackson games, for example, as yeah. oh, that was kind of Super Nintendo era. Yeah, maybe the end of the NES. I can't remember now. Um, yeah, so it's it, yeah, it I, might be amongst the first. Yeah, I can't quite remember when it came out. Um, and again, that was more arcade than you know, like um, home console. But yeah, yeah. it's. it's an interesting time and obviously some really fascinating games but how did your taste start to evolve as you i guess at this point there's a little bit of a love starting to form for video games and their variety of different forms at this point how did those tastes evolve was there were there any particular games or genres platforms that really clicked with you I mean, as kids, we just consumed everything, right? Like, you didn't really, you know, like the fact that you were allowed to sit in front of your, uh, you know, television with this new medium and play and, you know, your parents would let you. Like, we just played everything. I, but it was, um, I don't really actually think, like, any genre type or real um, major things stuck out for me at that stage because after we didn't have home consoles around for a while, and my family's a Luddite, so I'm, I'm the weird oh, techie yeah, okay. of the family. So we didn't have some for a while after they broke. Um, but yeah, it was, wasn't until Ness era. And honestly, the thing that probably really got me into games was MUDs. Yeah, okay. So back in my day, we didn't have pictures when we play a game. No. But yeah, so MUDs was... Um, it was a it was a long I got in in uni I got introduced to them and that may have been the best and worst thing that ever happened to me uh, look I can see I can see the best possible way how did how did things go wrong um I may have spent more time playing Consumed. games in the computer lab than um focusing on assignments yeah right we've all had that moment it's okay <laughs> yeah. Yeah. at least yeah. it wasn't something like a a world of Warcraft, for example, for so many people back in the day that just devoured lives. No, no, not that bad. But it devoured grades. <laughs> yeah, okay. As the teacher, I can. I, I'm happy to give you a, a free pass there. That's all right. We can, we can well, fix these things up. It's clearly everything's worked out fine, hasn't it? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's been a weird, weird road to get here, but obviously, you know, the, you know, I'm certain that, you know, many years later, my parents are like, oh, you can't actually do something with that. <laughs> <laughs> I showed you, mum and dad. Yep. Was there a was there a game at all that you potentially identify, or maybe even a collection of them, that was potentially what guided you towards the actual pursuit of creating games? I mean, at what point did you realize? Because everyone tends to have that revelatory moment that oh, these aren't computers that make this. There's people behind these things. When did that happen for you? And did you was that kind of at the same point that you decided, hey, I want to I want to do this myself? So really, what got me into that was a bit you know when you're young and you're a little bit more. Um, naive about your skills so you have great ideas about them um you know again back in the earlier days of um websites and stuff i started learning how to um program websites for myself and you yeah. know, do that sort of stuff and you know looking into it and i started and was like oh i'm gonna go you know study you know website programming learn how to do that sort of side and then it was kind of like ah huh, that's right people play games too and they program games and it's like oh you know it feels like a half a step sideways from where I yeah. am and I could be down that path. Yeah, exactly. And so um, I did I did a couple of years at um, Swinburne TAFE and studied for website stuff. And then after that, um, I did, through a scholarship, I went to AIE in Canberra. So, yeah. And I did programming there. And obviously both have a fantastic track record, especially these days with what they're, what they're, the, the quality of the students that they're producing in, in those programs. So that's fantastic that you managed to find yourself a part of that and... And um, obviously what's come since has been fantastic. So how did that first opportunity actually emerge then for you? Um, I've got, I've, there's a whole host of different names as I was kind of trawling through LinkedIn and a few other different resources and doing my research in the lead up to the show. We've obviously got things like White Noise Games right near the beginning there and, and Elven Worlds and several others. So how did those first opportunities actually emerge for you? That was, I mean, it's just a thing of, you know, you start volunteering your time, you get into games, find them, you start volunteering your time and helping out, you know, obviously nowadays, you know, we have, you know, community management, but effectively, you know, at the start of the, at the start of the, uh, you know, online gaming era, you know, most of that stuff was just run by random people who volunteered for free. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because some of those, um, some of those games like um, Elven Worlds and stuff, I still actually, even though it shut down a long time ago, I still talk with the guy who created it. We're still, oh, nice. you know, yeah, so we still talk. Um, another one of the mods that was on there, we still talk. So, you know, even though that was so long ago, there's, you know, there's people that have become, you know, sort of lifelong friends doing yeah. that as well. But um, yeah, it was just volunteer work at the time, working with mods and things like Elven Worlds and then slowly kind of going oh yeah and like I said that's where I went oh I'm programming that's a thing you know I, I can do this stuff and get paid to do it I don't just have to volunteer my time and do stuff on the side and so that you know honestly that's really you know what it was if there was if there was sort of a specific game I think that it was enamored with and the thing that probably really made me think about it at the time I would have been playing probably Baldur's Gate 1 Maybe, I think, I'm pretty certain it was one, maybe two, but I feel like it was probably back in the Baldur's Gate 1 age, and that's kind of where I was like, this is really cool. And so, you know, at that point for me, you know, the stars in my eyes, BioWare was, you know, the most amazing company on the planet. So, And so they that, were for a long time. Yeah, they were, absolutely. Like, they did. They just put out some amazing things. And, yeah, that was that was probably kind of the, the encouragement title, if you will, if you want to drill down to one specific thing, it would probably be Baldur's Gate. 
And so how at that point obviously there's there's the motivation, there's the seed, but how did the how did you then manage to get in? I suppose that's that's a whole other wanting to do something and actually being able to do it can be so vastly different things of, sometimes. So do you want to know in terms of start of the career or education yeah. into yeah, it? Yeah, I mean we've obviously touched on Swinburne and and um, AIE a little bit there, but yeah, how did we bridge those things to actually then get started in the industry? Yeah, so that was a little bit more, um, it actually took me a couple of years to get started um, and, you know, maybe a little bit contentious to some people. I refused, I was I was a little bit older when I started all this anyway, um, you, know, if you, you know, not, you know, not, you know, not elderly yet, I'm not there yet, um, but, you know, I also didn't start as a naive 16-year-old coming yeah. into it either. Yeah, you went to graduate, I, yeah. Yeah, so I'd already had, you know, I'd already had sort of, you know, I was in my mid-20s when I first decided to start doing this. Um, but what I did is I actually took, um, so I studied programming, but my most of my career has been in production. So I kind of sidestepped and realized my math skills are a bit terrible for programming. Um, yeah. And engines weren't a thing back then. So um, where I did learn, though, is through student projects because of my age and just because of my natural uh, want to manage things that became yeah. a really good role so i actually took um project management roles outside of um games industry and built up my skills doing that so i had some time in public service and a few other things and did some contract roles and yeah, then, i see the department of education science and training there at one stage as well yeah, yeah and it was really nice it was um i had a few supportive you know bosses along the way who helped you know in that stage help you know me learn and you know formulate a few things and so that was really nice to have people that you know that understood and they were fine and understanding that my you know long-term goals weren't there um but they were still happy to help you know support in my learning process through all of that and you know help guide me and you know so when tech projects specifically came up they would put me onto those and those sorts yeah. of things to help manage, which was great. And then I saw an assistant producer role at Chrome come up and I applied there and got the job. And that's the start of it in terms of the actual career into it. So, but yeah, it took a few years after I graduated before I got into a proper job. But I, like I said, my career path was, I wanted to get into production, not work my way into production yeah, yeah i follow what you mean yeah a slightly non-linear pathway but one that i guess has set you up with a host of different skills that have really even though they weren't developed in the the game development space have really served you well once you got in there so yeah that's fantastic yeah, to hear. It's so weird with um, project management side too. Um, government has very strict product. I mean, this is this is a bit of a you know weird thing, but they have very strict project management controls, and that's where I started to learn about project management processes too. And that has, even though I don't use that specific process that they use, that's really helped set me up for understanding a whole bunch of things around stakeholder management and all these other things that yeah. never, you know that when you come into that, you don't really consider production being a people management role when really it is it's not it's not it's less scheduling than people think that helps set me up for that mindset of what production really should focus on and so that's like it's odd but it's been a really good it was a good thing to learn so i'm glad i had that time to learn that no that's fantastic to hear that and again obviously you mentioned that when even when you first started dipping the toes in and getting some of these experiences you you weren't the 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 starry-eyed graduate you'd you'd had a couple of years out kind of experiencing i guess the real world which is is a thing that 
I think regardless of whatever profession someone ultimately gets into, it's just not a bad thing to have. And, and I say that as someone who personally, like I finished school, uh, went straight into uni, straight out of uni, straight into my um, into my teaching career, and I still haven't had an actual break, I guess, outside of my honeymoon, I think. Um, it's like through my entire thing. And there's, I guess for me, there's like, there's a little bit of regret there. Like, okay, what have I said? What, what have I missed? What experiences might I have picked up along the way that have would have really helped make me better in my industry, for example. Um, and I, by no means do I think I'm struggling or doing, doing a bad job, but there's there's always those opportunities that still emerge. And the thing that I think is fantastic in your case is you got to experience a few of those different things and got to see different perspectives and things that would ultimately assist what you're doing now. It's also handy because it's not the best industry um, for stability in any long-term yeah. role. And so it also helped set me up with skills and going down that path that are way more transferable than I ever thought, you know, first stepping into it. So that part's also been really interesting as well too, to be able to more seamlessly navigate games and non-games as necessary. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, we, we talk about Chrome and that was, uh, you were there from 2006 to 2009. And I mean, I, I've spoken about a lot. We've had a lot of Australian developers on the show over the, over the journey. And a lot of people know by this point that this 2008, nine period in particular was a very volatile one in the local industry because of the, the impacts of the global financial crisis. And there was studios closing all over the place. And so obviously you were at Chrome at the time and kind of observing this going on around you. What was what was that like? You obviously got to work on some fantastic titles, licensed titles from you know Hellboy. There was Clone Wars, Lightsaber Jewels, Clone Wars, Republic Heroes. But you're seeing this carnage starting to start to play out around you. Like what was what was that like? Carnage may be a bit extreme potentially, but like yeah. I mean, it it was it did decimate the industry. Yeah. Um, it really did. Um, I don't. There's probably some particulars about the um, some of my projects I can't get into. Yep. But in terms of looking at things and seeing things as in, um, and as projects were winding down and what was happening, it, at least to me, the writing on the wall was starting to become apparent that things were happening and that there was some. I won't. I wouldn't say at that point there were direct issues, but it just, things didn't look right and didn't seem right. And it's kind of the, it seemed like there was an iceberg off in the distance and you were heading towards it. And when is our Titanic going to hit that? And it's time to, it's time to, you know, and so basically effectively jump ship, jump ship, you know, I got out long before, you know, I was out for probably six or seven months before um, the layoffs started hitting from, um, and yeah, it just there was just a feeling and a concern there that things weren't starting to look good. And at that stage, you know, we'd already seen a few layoffs from um, THQ, and we started yes. to see the shutdown of Pandemic and stuff as well too, because Chrome had absorbed people from those companies, yeah. and it just started to look really uncertain, you know, internally and externally. You know, and by externally, I mean within the Brisbane development scene as a whole. And it was just like, no, it's time to time to time to go. Yeah, so. and I guess possibly the thing even moving through your brain at the time is well if i can get out if i can be among the first then that gives me more options more to work with um less yeah. competition and um i mean was that kind of part of the thinking at the time as well it wasn't necessarily even competition it was just more um so my partner's also in the games industry and it was more about how do you keep two people employed in an industry that seems to be shrinking locally and what do you do and that became the concern that we needed to go elsewhere to both stay yeah. employed so no, that, that yeah makes a lot of sense. 
in terms of the games themselves that you actually worked on at the time um so again i you know i cited hellboy and a couple clone wars titles what were some of the highlights of some of the games that you got to work on there obviously the ones that i guess to your point a moment ago that you, you're allowed to talk about um yeah. what were some of the highlights from that period um you know honestly the teams it sounds yeah. really cheesy but you know coming from a production role you know there wasn't as much direct hands-on work that i did but during that period, I got to work with some amazing people and I was lucky because I've been able to sit here now and over the last you know, 10 years, watch their careers and see where everybody's gone across the globe and what they're doing. And, you know, this, you know it's just it's so interesting how small the world is because at the last, you know, the last me, you know, the in-person GCAP I went to, I met, you know, I met some people over at a Montreal studio who yeah. were working with somebody who had come in as a junior UI artist who had just started fresh in the industry at the time. Um, so it was interesting to hear about her journey. It's not somebody I keep in touch with, but it was good to, you know, hear that she's still out there and doing really well. And, you know, so it's, it's just been really fun. Just honestly, the people, the people are what make it. The, to me, in terms of working at Chrome, the people were really the most important part of that. And that even goes down to stupid stuff like the cleaners. Like, I loved the cleaner we had there. And he talked, you know, he was just a fixture in the company and talked with people. And he had his own interesting backstory of life. And, you know, that was the part that was really good. No, I, I mean, I'd agree with you. And I'm sure most of our listeners would be agreeing as well that, you know, regardless of the industry you're in, it's it's the people around you that really make it what it is. It makes That's what makes the enjoyable environment that you want to stick around with. Um, usually, if that's not the case, you're starting to consider your options. So, yeah. um, I, no, I think that's incredibly important. I guess, like, even to your point there, of, and perhaps a little bit being the nature of your role is that you're kind of interacting with people in a host of different um, disciplines around around the studio and you, you get to meet so many different people and you talk about obviously you see what they're doing and you know obviously a lot of people have gone their different ways over the years since but you see oh such and such did this and such and such did that and like I I don't have nearly the same level of investment because here I'm just a podcast host talking to game developers as they come on but I mean I've had 80 odd people on the show over the years now and like I see such and such has moved on and gotten a new job over here and you're like oh yeah hang on cool. and you start to track these things and you get you yeah. get really invested in 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 what's happening and you get really excited when they get, get this amazing new role at a big new studio or whatever the case happens to be or they've gone off and they've they've started their own and you just you want to ride the bumps with them and I'm sure it's probably meant that I've bought a lot of games over the journey that just oh, would I have bought that had I not had this investment in the person maybe not but I'm excited for them and it's also just really nice to see, you know, that look, you know, the first, you know, Chrome was, you know, probably more of a double A studio and what we worked on. And it's amazing to see and have, I guess, for those people see their talents recognized for what they were and seeing them going on, you know, to make amazing AAA games and huge studios that have had, you know, and they've had really amazing impacts in them. So that's been really cool to see that that talent, while the GFC itself sucked and seeing things close sucked, it was really nice to just see those people's skills acknowledged on a a global scale. That's fantastic. And so that next chapter, after you've seen the writing of the wall or the iceberg coming, as we discussed before, um, that next period, and you obviously mentioned it yourself before where the nature of this industry sometimes is that you are moving from job to job to job in a fairly rapid sort of rate and this next chapter for you as I, I you know go through a few different names there we're talking about read.co.uk there's freestyle games with activision there that you worked on some dj hero contact packs yeah. 
Natural Motion, Curve Studios, uh, Ninja Theories along the way there where you assisted with uh, DMC DLC. Yeah. Uh, and there's a couple others, uh, Luluverse and Codehouse, like all of these, as, as I was kind of checking through, and again, this is the, the perk of uh, LinkedIn here for a moment, yeah. but like as I'm looking through, I'm going, oh, I'm no-, and I'm noticing the duration on a lot of those, and I think the the longest, or I think the longest was about 18 months of all those ones that I, I mentioned there. And so it's a fairly transient period for you, I guess, in terms of your, your jobs and the roles you were working in. What was that like for you? Yeah, so I mean, some of them were some of them were um, leave by choice. Some of them were leave by not choice, um, unfortunately. But yeah, so I mean, like at the start, it was um, you know as much as we talk about how the GFC had impacted Australia, um, moving during that period, it had actually impacted the UK quite a bit as well too. And moving over there, it was really, really hard for a long time to find any um, production roles and games over there. So that's why I got a job at Reed. And it was really nice again, you know, there, there were people who um, interviewed me and understood my background and understood the transferability of skills. Um, and obviously every job outside of games has been that way, which has been wonderful. And yeah, they like games anyway. And so they were excited. And, you know, I, I still remember um, at Reed, one of the interview questions I got asked was, um, I had to name five of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And that was right. one of my interview questions. So, and it was, I, I think I got I got all. I got five of them. I did get them, and it was just because, as how stands, I had actually been looking at something related about that, like probably oh, right. about two weeks prior. So, um, yeah, so it was fresh in my brain anyway. But that was, you know, it was just like oh, I actually looked around on this recently. <laughs> I think I can do this. So, but yeah, so that was an odd interview question. But that was um, games and knowing the ancient wonders of the world got me in there for. And it was good to park for a while and do that. And then again, you know, until you could find something that was where you wanted to be, which was um, freestyle games. And I said, there's a couple of companies that were probably my favorite to work at and freestyle was pretty much up there as my favorite. Like it was such a, it it, is such a family. It it was so nice. I loved everybody I worked with there. And it was so sad when that studio went through its redundancy period as well too. So um, and that's obviously why that got left is um, the studio ended up staying open. They got saved in the end and got some projects, but some people were let go during that process. So, yeah, it's a that's a real shame. Yeah. And so I guess a similar story though. It's not so much about the projects, but it's it's about the people that is what's really yep. made. So what was it? What was it about freestyle that I guess culturally was so was just so great. Um, I, it's some studios have it, some don't. But one of the things that I liked um, was basically, um, at least in British studios, the bigger ones I've seen, there's a lot of um, group coffee and tea times, and okay. so you just have your little coffee groups, and you would just and people would just be like, hey, on the messenger, time for coffee, and it's like, okay, everybody would come from where their different departments. You know, you'd boil the kettle, you'd get your cafetiere, make your tea, coffee, and you could sit down for 15, 20 minutes and have a chin wag. And nobody was there yelling at you for it because that was considered a thing. You know, people had taking coffee and tea breaks. And so that's something that I found, at least in my personal impression, that was a bit more, um, it was a bit it was something that seems a little bit more British to me than I saw in Australian studios. People would go out, but I don't think people, at least in my take on it felt as comfortable standing around for too long or even just sitting down and having a drink on like you're being lazy. 
Yeah. Yeah. So the tea breaks were a very British thing. Um, and it was just really nice. It was so great because that's how, I mean, that's the type of, you know, that's, that's family stuff, if you know what I mean. And when you work yeah. out that you're seeing these people, you know, eight to 10 hours a day, you know, depending on schedules, you know, and what you know, time of year, you know, whether you're crunching or not, and you're seeing them five days a week, they should be your family. That's a lot of time to spend with people that are not your family. Yeah, so. absolutely. The titles itself in, in DJ Hero there, like was, I mean, that was, that was exciting to be a part of. That was a, obviously a spin-off to the core Guitar Hero franchise there. And there was a bit of experimentation going on, but it was a really fantastic concept it was, I guess the project itself. What was that like to be a part of? It was a really interesting experience because it's made very differently to a standard game. Um, you know, the, the and so you, you know, you have a whole bunch of roles in in music games that you wouldn't have in other ones, and you would have DJ. Like we had people who were DJs. That was part of what yeah, they did right. to work out the mixing. So you have people who were, you know, that's part of their thing. And some of them still are DJing, you know, and, and doing stuff in the UK even now. Um, but we had DJs, we had people that did like MIDI markups so that you could get the notes in and those sorts of things. And so it was an interesting process in terms of it being more non-standard in the approach to how how the content is produced for a game. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's really quite cool. And I guess you probably never really experienced anything like that since really in terms of the the, the concepts and the ideas that you're going for. Yeah, no, I haven't. And sadly, I'm not sure how many people will because the music genres will really die down. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it'll probably make a comeback at some stage. But yeah, it's, it's, um, I think that's something that probably a lot of people won't ever, you know, won't ever see in their careers again. So, yeah, we'll all drag, when the time does come, hopefully, we'll all drag our guitar hero guitars out and our drum kits and our DJ decks and all those sorts of things. So, I'm sure, <laughs> like, I'm sure mine's around here somewhere. Just, layers upon layers of dust sitting on top of it at the moment but uh i'm sure the time will come and i look forward to yep. it uh from there so obviously we mentioned curve studios and ninja theory what and obviously ninja theory these days are i mean they're they're standing within within the industry it's just gone up and up and up um what was that like to be a part of both of those both of those two there Yes, the Curve was a really Curve was a really nice little studio, and I really liked the people I worked with. Um, I liked the smaller teams, and they were very because um, I was sort of getting at that point when I got in Curve, I was getting towards sort of mid career as well too. And you know, you want to take on more and do more. You don't just want to be you know the producer. You want to take on a little bit more. You know, as so you do, um, and they were they were quite lovely about letting me just sort of approach it the way I wanted to and look at a project. So I had come in mid-project working there. Um, so yeah. I was brought in mainly to sort of help get something out and keep track of it when it was, I won't say it was, I won't say it was going off track, but it, it needed help to keep it on track. So that's what yeah, I was okay. brought in for. And they let me do and approach it the way that I wanted to. And yeah, um, they were very supportive and they wanted me to stay on, but I couldn't refuse Ninja Theory. So, so, <laughs> so how did that opportunity emerge then? So you obviously were quite happy where you were, but you've made this jump regardless. And obviously you just highlighted that it was a kind of an opportunity you, you couldn't really pass up. Yeah. So how did that opportunity emerge then? So, I mean, you know, you always keep, you know, you always keep one eye, you know, one eye open, one ear to the ground and listen to things. And I had a recruiter come talk to me about um, the Ninja Theory opportunity. And I'm like, 
well, yeah, um, you know, I'm going to do that. That's, you know, that sounds amazing. I want to, you know, again, you know, sitting in that mid-career stage, I really wanted to push myself and see what I could do. And that's why I moved into Ninja Theory. So that was, um, that was a really, it was for me, you know, one of my biggest career moves forward, I feel. So. Yeah. I mean, the, the profile of that studio, which has obviously only grown since, but, um, like they were really building a, a really solid reputation at that point with, with yeah. what they'd done for Heavenly Sword and and then um, uh, was Enslaved yeah Enslaved was before DMC so and then obviously DMC itself is a very big name franchise to be working on so um, you came on at a really exciting time for the studio I'm sure and really exciting for you to be a part of yeah it was it was really good it was really interesting going into um, a combat game as well going you know having worked on you know adventure you know like slight you know slight combat titles but music titles and other things too or you know like you the know intensity is very different yes yeah and and it's definitely you know they're very much cinematic combat which is a different you know a different beast to even just you know a, you know a brawler or anything else and so that was a really interesting thing to to look you know look at the work people do and the amazing, absolutely amazing talent they had there. There's just, um, they're, and they're not, you know, it's not even necessarily names that people would recognize, but the talent there was just absolutely amazing. So that was something to be, that I was really proud of is just to be able to watch those people work and see what they did and help them get it out and deliver it. Yeah, and so obviously you had a hand in the Virgil's Downfall DLC as, as one, you know, one example there. What was that like to, I guess, you're already working on an established NIP. This is something that's kind of, in a way, contrasting with what had already been established from the the four core prior games. But then you get to work on this this DLC add-on to that as well. Like, what what was that like, and what were some of the challenges you had to face um, working on that? Yeah. Um, so really, to me, the challenges that I see, and this isn't even just with this title, it's just generally making sure the team gets the ability to express the vision that they want. Obviously, you know, that title came to Ninja Theory because they were doing amazing things. Yeah. And it's just about, you know, trying to manage what what the expectations are from externally and what people want to do internally to allow you know, as much expression as you can get out of that, but also make sure that you're delivering things that, you know, because I wasn't there for the contract, you know, I come in a little bit later, so I I wasn't there for the inception of the contract stage of all of this. So getting up to speed on that and, you know, then continuing forward with it and pulling the team to get, you know, getting the team, you know, to go through and, you know, just make sure that we were really, you know, looking at everything that was there and, you know, what we wanted to do with it and just, you know, keep it again you know, just keep everything on track it's such a silly thing to say but it's you know it's it's the people as much as the project and making yeah. sure that you know scope doesn't creep and people you know we have a billion great ideas and it's like cool let's you know we can always distill those down to the you know what we can do and how we do that and you know what's our approach and yeah that was and so that was really there's the design team was somebody you know team that I worked with fairly closely and um still Still adore them. Still, I think I still have all of them on Facebook as well too. Especially, yes. I worked with the whole team, but the design team is a really interesting and fun team to work with and walk through that process with them to get out what they wanted. No, that's that's fantastic, and I guess yeah, they are. I mean, they were still growing at the time, but they're such an acclaimed studio now. 
what do you what do you learn from that that's that's really and obviously the the games you're working on currently the the uh, everything that we're kind of seeing from prideful sloth is in a gameplay sense tonally very very different to the titles of that period but what can you take or what have you taken from that that still i guess helped in a way with what you're doing these days I, it's you know it's, i'm not seeing too many swords i must say in, in, in either I, of those but or, or some of the cussing that we get from dante in that but yeah, um, yeah. i guess you know in terms of your your role and how you approach your work was were there any particularly valuable lessons that have really assisted there it, it is there? and it's probably it, it's the opposite of what you would probably think which is good combat is really really friggin hard and good combat needs a lot of animation work and a lot of planning and it's it is a combat games are really hard to make like i you know it's i i don't i feel like they don't get as much understanding as to how hard they are to make than they are and the animation work on that is just you need a lot of animators to pull off a good game um, and make it look really, really seamless, which is what, you know, Ninja Theory had a fantastic oh, sure. animation team to do that. You know, obviously they need the coders and everything else, but yeah, that's, and so what I learned was it's really hard to make a good combat <laughs> game. So maybe you don't make a combat game as your first game as a new studio. No, that's <laughs> right. Unless, you know, with a small team, it's really hard to do with a small team and do it well. So that was probably the thing I learned the most of. It is hard to do, and it takes a lot of work and a lot of resources. So maybe not your best first game as a studio. No, that, that's fair. But I guess, and this is me projecting forward a little bit now and trying not to wade into NDA waters or any of that sort of thing. But you've obviously just mentioned there that it's not necessarily the best thing to do if you're a new studio. Now, Prideful Sloth is no longer a new studio. It's established, you've got a couple games out, is... I guess, and neither neither game, and we are going to touch on them. I guess we're we're getting awfully close to talking about that period now. But the idea of exploring combating games a little bit deeper, maybe not necessary to that sort of level, but is that something that's kind of something you'd like to revisit again, or? It's not something that's really come up by the team. I mean, we have our internal jokes about, you know, oh, what if we do the Grofles with Gun DLC for Yonder? You know, is, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we do make jokes about sort of things like that. But at the end of the day, it's um, it's a good it's April not, Fool's Day you know, joke. <laughs> it's not something that we we're necessarily um, considering exploring at this time. Yeah, so. no, that's that's fair enough. And like I said, that goes down to the, if nothing else, the resources and the team size and things to do it well. And when I say that, you know, it's about the doing it well part. That's the important bit for us is it's, it needs, you know, even, you know, just, you know, look at the team size of even just hand of fate to do that. You know, that yeah. was, you know, we're, we're not that big. So, you know, we're, there's, it would, it would take a lot of scaling. time with yeah. the team size we have to make something, you know, even like Hand of Fate. So, no, that's that's, that's fair enough. It makes a lot of sense, and obviously, there's got to be that that desire within the team to pursue that path as well, which is really important. It's it's hard to just shoehorn these things in as well. Well, there may be some desire from certain people, <laughs> but you know, we do with you know. But at the end of the day, what you want and what makes the most sense sometimes aren't the same thing. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. Um, so as we kind of wrap up this segment and start to move towards the, the prideful sloth era, for want of a better phrase, um, yeah. the, I, you know, there's Lulu Vise, there's Code House. And again, I, I referenced that 
maximum tenure of about 18 months so obviously you moved on from from ninja theory there how did how did that come about um that was a move back into london um yep. so and just in cambridge is a real it's it's not terrible but it is a grinding commute every day um yeah, okay. and so that was the thing where it became easier after move um and things going on to just relocate to a new job and honestly like it sounds weird and I quite enjoyed the time again at Luluvise, um, even though it wasn't in games, because again, um, interesting teams, different, you know, app, you know, it was an app that we were working on, but I got a lot of um, freedom and it was a start, it was more of a startup, you know, culture there. And yeah, okay. so being able to bring in my experience in project management and do things like weekly weekly project reports and start doing you know taking some of these things that i've built up in my arsenal and that's what i was talking about moving into that mid-level of my career um it was actually the first job i had where anybody told me they liked the reports and they read them every week and that came from my, from the from my boss the owner you know the company yeah, and right. i'm like wow okay <laughs> that's do you good think, and do you think they, in a way and obviously i haven't been involved in a startup myself but because because it is a startup and there can often be this this constant source of energy and enthusiasm and desire like we're going to do this and we're going to do that and you know, push forward sort of approach that actually having someone come in in that capacity is really valuable to allow people to take stock a little bit and look beyond that kind of very narrow focus that they might have in that moment and think think a little bit more broadly do you think that was where you really assisted that studio the most in some ways I mean, I, I think every, I wouldn't say I assisted, I guess. I mean, everybody was very competent and, you know, it was an amazing team, including the management team there. But I think more so it was just taking in the ability when, when it is a startup, everybody's very busy as well, too. Or it, it was, it was young, you know, I wouldn't say it was true startup. I think it had been around for a couple, a, a year or two at that point, but it's okay. still very early days of startup side, you know, so it was, you know, it was 10, 12 people. So it wasn't, you know. Um, but I think being able to distill down information and present, you know, here's, here's, here's where things are tracking, here's where things are off track, here's what the impact of these things are, um, this is what's going to happen, um, we'll need to do these things, can you sign off on which is your preference? Um, you know, just distilling all that stuff down that happens in a week to, you know, a three or four page report that they can read through, understand what's going on and then go, yes, this is the approach we want to take. You know, yeah. that, you know, that helps people make decisions that are, you know, valid and good and also make sure that they end up have the facts that they need to in, in front of them. Because, you know, having at the time, I don't think I really appreciated how busy a role like that was. But now having set up Prideful Sloth, I'm just like, even my poor accountants sometimes have to send me three emails before I get back to them. So no, that's that's fair enough. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, so there's Codehouse and then Prideful Sloth. Yep. Codehouse being that. Uh, sorry, yeah. Codehouse being that last kind of uh, stopping point before before Prideful Sloth. What was the the reasoning behind, I guess, forming Prideful Sloth at that point? Was it was there a little bit of a? And you mentioned stability earlier on. Was that one of the main driving forces? Like, okay, it's it's time to build something. You know, I guess coupled with, I want to make sure that games is the the core of my work. Like, what what were some of the motivations there as as your time at Codehouse came to an end and and Prideful Sloth was formed? Um, so the it wasn't just really Codehouse. Like, I don't want to you know say anything about bad about working there, but I think oh, sorry, I didn't mean point, I didn't mean it. To say the that. veneer the veneer of working in London was starting to wear off. Um, yeah. 
it's London's a very interesting beast to begin with um, as a city and uh, it can be a bit hard sometimes depending on what you're doing where you are and it's a big place and it becomes at least for me personally it became a little bit soulless and so there was a part where that was kind of just my I'm you know table flip I'm over everything sort of you know stage of London so in general um, but also there was an opportunity to move back in a safe way because the dollar here was bad and oh, yeah. we found good and basically it's a two for one deal at the point pretty much moving back and so it's like okay well um i'm tired here there's no studios i can get a job in in australia but i don't want to stay here what are my options right okay well i guess i have a year of savings in the bank and i can take a risk move back take a risk set up a company and who knows <laughs> and i i guess that so I assume, yeah, some of that stability component as well as obviously, yeah, the as you said, the veneer and, and the soulless component to London and those sorts of things and a desire to get get away were obviously important factors. But, yeah, stability obviously really important as well. And so that's, I mean, from 2015 onwards, it's it's been prideful sloth and we've seen two fantastic titles so far in, in Yonder and, and Grow Song of the Evertree. But um, what was it like, I guess, for you starting to build that team that's that's ultimately gone on to create those titles? Uh, it's, it's, it's been interesting. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird to be on the other side of the fence and be the picker rather than the picky, if you will. Um, but having said that too, you know, um, we're not, we're mainly trying to build the team through contacts that we have, people we know, people we've worked with before. So they kind of already come in pre-vetted as well too, which has made it handy, um, in terms of basically knowing knowing what you're working with and knowing those people's skills so effectively we really don't do a huge interview process either because they're people that we know um and so that's helped a lot too but yeah it's it's been interesting because obviously um even just with the three directors joel john and myself um that's been an interesting journey and just it's again it's something i never understood until i set up the company and did it myself um, because I used to see the directors like a freestyle games together a lot. And, you know, you could kind of see people wondering what was going on. And it's not even half the time that something was going on. It's just that basically it's a family. You know, if you're setting up a company together, you're, 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 we joke, we jokingly call it business married. The three of us oh, are business yeah. married and you're, you know, and it's actually probably harder to break up a business than it is to break up a marriage, like in terms of how exiting starts working out and how it all goes. Um, there's a lot of legal obligations to yeah, set up a business. Yeah. yeah and Look, I, I, hope, hopefully I don't ever have to entertain either of those sorts of situations. <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess that makes a lot of sense, though. But yeah, so it's, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of, you, it becomes, it becomes an extension of your family in that respect. Um, and so that part's kind of interesting to see now and understand why, you know, it wasn't for any, it wasn't secret squirrels business or anything else going on. It's just effectively, this is somebody that you're now, you know, basically you're caretakers of each other's um, careers and their livelihoods, you know. Yeah, you got each other's back. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, you kind of do become a family and you do just sort of have that, you know, weird, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know, you know, how to explain it other than just, you know, you become, you know, financially entangled as much as you do, you know, anything else. And so 
you learn a lot about people that you wouldn't have any, you wouldn't have knowledge of with any other friend in the world, except this one friend you suddenly set up the business with. And now is everybody knows everything. So yeah, you know, every it, becomes, it becomes a very oddly personal relationship too, um, in that respect, because you know, things you shouldn't about any other person. Um, but yeah, so that's been an interesting learning experience and a weird thing to see from the other side of it, the uh, business marriage. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, and in terms of picking people for the teams, um, we obviously all have our skills and our weaknesses. Like I'm leading design, but I'm obviously non-designer by trade. And so I'm very, um, I'm very aware that I'm design illiterate at the same time. Yeah. I don't know, I've, it's not something I've done in the real world. And so I accept and understand the the ideas and things that I do and the way I communicate aren't probably as beneficial to the team as they could be at times. So getting somebody in who can kind of help, honestly, um, babysit me through that and oh, bring, yeah. like, you know, and work with me on that. And so I jokingly call Adam my boss some days, even yeah. because I was like, I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do, Adam. How does this work? Um, and so, you know, he's kind of just like, ah, that's fine, you know. And so anyway, it's a it's it's a good, you know, it's a good thing to have because I have somebody that's, you know, qualified and trained in it. And so I can learn off them as much. And so, you know, bringing people in who complement and, you know, have skills that you don't need. And so it's also a point of reflectively being brutally honest about what you're good at and what you're not. Um, because this company is going, you can't have the company. I mean, some people probably do. Let me say, I won't say can't, but you're likely not to have a company succeed if you're not willing to understand where the gaps are. And yeah. when you set up a company, the only gaps are in the people who set up the company. So, yeah, it's recognizing your weaknesses, yep. deficiencies, and of course, areas of strength. And as you said, and you nailed it perfectly with compliment, like you, you're trying to find the people that complement the strengths that you've already got and can address the weaknesses. Yep, I suppose. absolutely. And um, I, look, I was thrilled when, and this was sometime after I had Lee May on the show, but then the announcement of um, Grow came along and I knew that he'd kind of, I'm working on something with the team. I can't say what it is. But the, knowing kind of what his skill set was, I at least, okay, I know the pathway we're kind of going down here. And it was, it, was, it was really exciting to see that. And I know just over the years, and obviously with everything he's worked on, obviously we, we mentioned Hand of Fate, for example, before, and he's been part of those. I'm like, okay, like it, whatever team he goes to, he's going to be a really valuable asset. And I think to, to the point that we've just made there, he compliment you know there's, there's probably a perfect compliment to someone else who is strong in this area but not so much in in that you know and within that writing team he's a he's a huge um uh assistance to the team i suppose and absolutely he yeah. was great he did a great job um and he worked with me and was patient while i helped um again world building and lore building is not something i've really ever done but that's part of what i took on and he was wonderful about helping work through that and understand um, in my slightly um, writer illiterate way to talk about these things and pick that up and ask questions and, you know, work on things. And he did a great job. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And for you, obviously, whilst it may not be your core discipline, these, these are all these fantastic lessons that you learn along the way that are ultimately going to serve you in the next title and the next title after that and wherever yeah. things ultimately go from here. So... 
I guess we've just kind of focused on Lee and and uh, grow there. But before all that, of course, there was Yonder the Cloud uh, the Cloud Catcher Chronicles. One yep. that I always too many C's I stumble over it. But um, what the the genesis of that genesis of that idea? Where did, where did that come from? It's it's a game that I spent a lot of time with when it when it when it first came out and um had had an absolute blast with. But how did how did the idea first emerge? Um, so it was something that had been percolating an idea in the back of my mind um, for some time is because um, at that stage I had gotten a lot of exposure to games like um, Harvest Moon and things like that too. So it's something that was kind of percolating in the back of my mind and being able to sit down with Joel, um, one of the directors and work through that idea and start building a prototype with that and working it out and um just really kind of, you know, going, cool, here's some ideas. And so I brought the Harvest Moon type concepts into it. He added his spin on it with the more Zelda vibes. And we started to just get this thing that sort of really became a fun little project. And we're like, okay, this, this is, this is, this is the thing we're doing. This is Prideful Sloth. And, you know, we took that, we, took it to Sony and we got really lucky to get some funding from Sony to make it. Um, so bless them. I always say, you know, the studio wouldn't be here without them having backed us originally. So, um, you know, that's, that was wonderful that they supported it and believed in it enough to do that. And yeah, um, just brought John on and then we started working on that and we had a good core team of the three of us. And then, we brought in some contractors and help from, I don't know if you're aware of Disparity Games, Jason and Nicole Stark. Yeah, yep. Yeah, they've been working with us for a number of years now and helping on that. Um, they worked on Grow, they helped on Yonder, so bringing them in to help, um, you know, do do the, the animation and the art and everything. And then about six months before the game was done, we suddenly realized we had to do all the PR for it. And basically I had to walk off and get, do all the PR for it. And I just basically stopped making the game. Sorry, I was busy luck. doing PR and, and it just, it was up to Joel and John and the Starks and the contractors to make the decisions to what was felt right to get the game out the door. And I guess at that point, like that sort of PR side, yeah. was that something you really had to do much of in the past? Oh no, it's PR has been a big learning experience. Um, it, it, I guess it helps, you know, in a way coming from a, a role that's very people focused originally. Um, and, but yeah, it's, it's, I had never spoken with press before. We sort of prideful sloth and I'm just like, oh God, I'm going to say something dumb, aren't I? Cause um, that's my MO. That's what I do. I, I either Put your foot in it. do something dumb or say something dumb at some point. So, I mean, I guess, I guess it happens to all of us at times and it, I don't think it matters how much media training or any of those sort of things you can get. At some point something happens and you just hope it's not, too, <laughs> you hope it's not too severe. But um, yeah. I guess, yeah, you've, you've kind of struck off on your own. You haven't really had that experience at that point. You, you're interacting with all these various outlets big and small youtubers websites whatever the case happens to be um how did you so obviously you had to kind of make do and you did have these i guess communication these people skills that you developed for years anyway but it is a very different sort of thing to kind of it's more it's more about promoting rather than rather than kind of working towards a goal together with with the team so what was it like for you there i guess in terms of the the nature of these conversations and the differences in them yeah, um, 
a lot. It's learning to be okay to be guarded and learning to um, filter what you say before you say it. Um, I don't necessarily have the best filter sometimes, but um, my filter, it is there when I need it. Um, I I would like to say I do have a filter. It's just I don't often use it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's learning how to do that. Um, But it's also one of the big ones, too, was thinking about what what is this publication? What do they want? And what is it I can give them? And what is it, you know, and it sounds it sounds weird, but it's not about manipulating things, but it's about understanding because everything's a give and take. And if you have something unique or special you can give someone, then that makes that story better for them as well too, you know? And that's the point of understanding. It's a two-way relationship. It's not about me just yep. promoting my game. It's also about allowing you to be able to give something unique that makes this article worth writing and promoting. So that's that's probably been one of the big ones about how you analyze and look at things. Well, I mean, this is going to sound horribly cheesy now given the comment you've just made, but I think you're giving this show something very special right now. So thank you for everything you've uh, provided so far. And I oh, thank you. The, the remainder of the chat. But um, obviously you, you, you went on that PR cycle there and, and got to sweep in at the end and go, guys, it's all done. We're ready to go. And... What, what was it like you walk into a burning house with everything everyone's running around going we need to get the game out <laughs> yeah yeah it is a bit um I, I i did a gcap talk after yonder and i think there was a point where up to launch i think i did i, I just basically used gifts and memes sort of at the start of the chapters that i went through and i'm pretty certain this was the, was the dumpster fire gif yeah right um, yeah and it's not that anything was bad it's just when you come from big teams of people and you have everybody doing all this stuff and then you take then you need to do these roles and fill them yourself, um, you know, it creates gaps elsewhere. And yeah. I won't say we were blindsided by it, but even then, you know, as you're trying to ship a game, every minute counts. Every minute you lose becomes that much harder. And I, I, I'm not going to lie um, and say that it was easy because it wasn't. Um, it also makes it really hard when you're in starting studio. Well, not hard. I mean, it's nice, but it is hard. When you're a startup studio and you have multiple people saying, oh, we have this opportunity for you or that opportunity for you, but we need something in two weeks or three weeks. And one of them was basically um, getting yonder onto the um, you know, the in, in, in-store kiosks. On oh, the yeah, okay. Kiosks. Um, and I think that went into Canada, North America, and South America. But we didn't even have a localization system or a localization team at that point, and we had two weeks to get it out into um, five or six different languages, and we did it. Um, That's by we, probably more, it's probably more royal we than me. Yeah, but, the team. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, and it was good. You know, like that was like said. You know, it's, it's don't want it to sound like oh, these opportunities are so hard. We were very appreciative of every single one we did, and we tried to you know do our best to deliver on them and not say no. Um, but just stuff like that. You know, that was two weeks to just. Yes, it was a system we needed, and yes, we needed localization. But to go through and get it down so that it's a demo when it wasn't prepared for that at that stage, that takes a bit of time. Having said that, if that same opportunity come up and I was working in a team of 50 people, we could have never have delivered that in that amount of time. Yeah, the right. less people you have, the smaller your turning circle is to get things done. It would be much, much harder in a bigger team to do that in the same way because you're derailing so many more people. Um, yeah, it makes sense. So that's one of the one of the good sides, I guess, is the smaller team means you know, you're more flexible and you can quickly 
do things. But, you know, those opportunities, as nice as they are and as grateful as we are for them, they take time away and they add up. And when you're at the end of the project, you can't get that time back when you have a, a deadline to hit. Yeah. So, you know, there was sleepless nights and, you know, tired people and overtime and a lot of things. Um, and I won't, I won't pretend that I think overtime and crunch is good, but I would... I would do it all over again because I'm very proud of what we got out and it's set us up for where we are now. Um, yeah, you, you learned that. Yep. So, I mean, it's the, you know, like I said, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I'm not saying that I, you know, believe that overtime and crunch is a good thing, but at the end of the day, I'm also a director in a company um, and my livelihood's on the line. So what are my choices? Um, yeah. I'm going to do it because I like, what I do, I like my job, and I want to keep my job, so I did them. And yeah. no, that that makes a lot of sense, and I think it's not it's not exclusive to the game development scene where sometimes there are these points, and hopefully, hopefully, you're able to uh, spot them before they actually emerge. That's that's the ideal scenario, I think, in any in any sort of organization, yeah. is that you actually see these things on the horizon, and you're able to you're able to appropriately plan for those. But these peaks and troughs happen at times, and yeah. it's sometimes there's a case of okay let's brace for impact if we want to go back to the iceberg sort of scenario here um and sometimes yeah, things don't necessarily go as well but you you make the best of them and there are as you said livelihoods are on the line and i and i think we're in a creative business here and there's i mean there's passions and all those sorts of things and obviously that that can there's a lot on the line there um yeah. and it's it can be a, a tricky line to walk i guess no matter how yeah. big or how small your studio is yeah, and, and like I said, I you know I mean it, it's it's a trade off, and it's one that every individual has to make and choose what they want to do. Um, again, I I would do it again. I I would like to not do it again now, um, but at the same time, to get to where we are, if the same thing happened and the same opportunities were presented to me, I would I don't regret the decisions I made or doing yeah. the overtime to get here either. So um, that makes but, sense. You know, that's you know that's from that's from somebody who has an ownership point of view not from somebody who's a worker and they're very yeah. different you know they're very different stakes the levels of investment yeah but i guess and presumably for everyone probably all worth it when the game was received as well as it was so i mean like it was quite it's still to this day i look quite back uh, fondly sorry i look back quite fondly upon the game um, and several others that I talked to, exactly the same. And when when grow immersion instantly, I thought, okay, I'm going to go back and go play yonder again because I had a great time. And obviously, you mentioned before a couple of tentpole inspirations there in Harvest Moon and Zelda. And for me, yeah. that is that's like childhood pool. Those yeah. the, the, those two franchises, I spent a lot of time with those. So yeah. it was naturally a game that came, especially the way they came together, was something that really really spoke to me. And I went back to it, and I believe. And I mean, it could be old data. Maybe it was even incorrect. Like, apparently, the the Japanese market in particular was somewhere that really, really latched onto the game. If I recall reading that yeah, right, yeah, we did yeah. really well. Um, we won. We even won an award at um, Tokyo Game Show um, yep. from it. So that was yeah. So that was uh, and we won an award um, in Korea, South Korea as well too. And so there was uh, there was some right. surprisingly lovely support coming out of some of the uh, Asian territories that were were surprising but also um flattering you know <laughs> we're taking gay you know basically our inspirations are titles that came out of japan you know and so 
you know, that was the creative, you know, hub for us and to sort of go back and have something that we could put back into the territory that was loved in return and awarded, you know, like that, like I said, you know, that's, that, that was for us just, we're like, okay, that's it. We're, we're out. Like, we're not going to get any better than this. You know, we're, we're it's done. That's what we can. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so. So then that all of this leads towards Grow, your your most recent titles, Grow Song of the Evertree, for anyone who's not necessarily familiar, please go check it out on your platform of, of, of preference there. But um, what do you take from everything that you've learnt from Yonder at that point? And it's the studio's second title. You've, you've been through every step of the way. You've obviously learnt little things like PR, for example, along the way. But um, what, what were some of the most valuable things that you learnt from the original game that I guess made working on Grow... I'm not going to necessarily say easier, but something that you were maybe more prepared for in some ways. Um, obviously more prepared for. I, I would. The thing is, I would say whether we're more prepared for PR and trailers and those things, but then the world changed. Um, well, the COVID world changed our games and everything worked. So that pretty much derailed everybody's marketing and PR plans. Um, when we have PR people going, oh, there might still be this event. Can you come? And we're like, no, we can't get out of the country. I'm sorry. Yeah. We're not allowed out of the country. Um, so sorry. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, that's the greatest level of respect, but no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like I can't even legally get out of my country right now, um, you know, to go anywhere, um, let alone my city or state, you know, so yeah. I'm sorry. Um, and, and they were understanding of that. But yeah, I mean, that changed a lot of that sort of side. So I would say that that was something we were more prepared for. But then, you know, life as it is changes and gives you something new to learn from. So um, that side, I, in terms of um, mechanics and stuff that we learned a lot from what the Grow audience was looking for and tried to take and push some of those where people were like, oh, it would have been nice to do more, you know, to, to develop town and do things more in that sort of side, which is obviously, yeah. you know, became a very big component and grow. Oh, it would be nice, you know, if I could get deeper stories from these people and learn more about them and form relationships with them. So again, you know, those were things that we learned that, you know, that that was kind of what people in this genre wanted to see. And so we worked on those and brought those into it. So that kind of helped form some of the basic mechanics, I guess. So it set us up early on. Um, not to say that the mechanics themselves aren't aren't their own set of, you know, they, they required their own set of wrangling. Um, to me, the grow mechanic itself on the worlds is fantastic, but that took a long time to get right because we're very used to a harvest moon sort of game where you quickly put where you put something yeah. in you sleep it grows and do you know does things and to basically i i, I liken the the growth mechanic to reverse farming it's you know you're, you're doing things to not harvest the aim is to grow yeah. things to leave there and you know and so it's kind of reverse farming or you know gardening is the other side and you can liken it to gardening which isn't necessarily something that we really had anybody we could lean on how that worked so that yeah. became that mechanic took quite a while to really get to feel right and how that would work um just because you know there's this things you can look at and go okay i can learn from your past success i can learn from your past failure but doing this was different and when yeah. you start doing those different things that takes that takes longer than you expect sometimes. So there's there's a re reverse Harvest Moon slash Story of Seasons component to the game. Were there any other, and I guess, we again, we referenced Harvest Moon and Zelda before, were there any other 
franchises or titles that kind of served as a bit of an inspiration or uh, you know uh, uh, oh, what's the phrase I'm looking for a North Star sort of uh, point to kind of head towards in a way um you know there's a little bit of the animal crossing vibe in there too um that that always sits in the back of my mind but um we started to kind of realize too that with grow we were a little bit more on our own um i'm not claiming that you know it's the most unique game ever because it does lift mechanics from other games but at the same time trying to put them all together in our own way that's something we don't really have somebody that can help us understand what's the pacing, how does balance work, how do these things work. And so you putting those all together and working out how to make them interact with each other in a nice playable way, that was that was kind of, you know, we we didn't really have a North Star for that. Um, we were we had to do our best guess and play through it and figure these things out a bit for ourselves. No, that's I mean that's that's a fantastic challenge in and of itself. So, Grow is available now, and we we should quickly shout out where people can actually pick the game up because it's it's on a host of different platforms. I I think I've played it on a few different ones now and thoroughly enjoyed it. But where where, where can people pick up Grow? Oh no, you're gonna test my you're gonna test my knowledge now. PlayStation, Xbox, Switch, Steam. I believe it's also out on GOG and Stadia now as well too. Fantastic, um, and so lots of great opportunities for people to pick it up there. Now, before we wind things down, um, cycling back to, I guess, rather than the studio and the title, cycle a little bit back in towards you and the uh, one or two serious ones and then a couple of light ones so as we yep. wrap things up. Is there anyone out there that really inspires you in the way you go about your work? Anyone that you've worked with or you've looked at from afar that has really been, I guess, a valuable mentor in some ways as well? It's There's not one specific person um in particular i'm trying to i'm just trying to think through because you know there's there's so many amazing people out there doing different things and again in the same way you sort of look at just different aspects of what people do um and learning from them there's a whole host of people out there um you know i mean i guess more recently things that i've been able to work with is we were lucky enough to have sherry Grainer ray she did um some support and basically design review for us on Yonder. And she's got a fantastic career history going back to origin days um, and working on um, EverQuest, I believe as well too, at Sony and a whole bunch of stuff. So she's got an amazing career. And so she kind of um, just did review for us and walk us through um, choke points and try and help us on that and so there was some valuable stuff to just learn from her along the way on that um i got brooke magson to help do a bit of narrative design review on grow and brooke was really lovely to help work through and help pull ideas together and understand what we were doing and looking through that it was great to understand the structure and concepts behind like said, so, you know, that everybody lacks in something and that's narrative design is something I don't really know about. And so being able to work with her on that and watch her put all these ideas together and be able to solidify them was a really interesting process to be able to work through as well too. So um 
you know, like I said, it's a, it's a hard one to say there's any one individual person. There's so many inspiring people out there, and they just kind of, you know, you just pick and choose as you go yeah. throughout. Um, I mean, just since we can, you know, since coming back and setting up with the company, Morgan Jaffet, Dan Treble, you know, they've always, you know, they're, you know, they're, they've looked after almost every developer in Brisbane. Let's oh, be yeah. fair, at some point. I mean, so, anyone I've spoken to in the in the Brisbane area always references Morgan. Yeah. One yeah. of these days, I'll manage to get Morgan on the show. He's been elusive, but um. <laughs> yeah, no, Morgan. This is, I mean, they've been fantastic. Um, and then, you know, also to um, Tony Reed has been amazing and working with us. And he's very supportive. And I actually, I owe him an email. If you ever watch this, Tony, I'm sorry. He sent us an email <laughs> and congratulated us on on releasing the game. I still haven't got back to him. I feel like a terrible human being. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's been a lot of support there from that sort of side too, and people that you know we know that we can reach out to if we need to and even yeah. just having that knowledge that even network. if they don't yeah it's been fantastic no and you've kind of addressed um my next question there which is kind of some of the most valuable lessons along the way you've kind of touched on a few different ones in terms of the narrative side and you, a little bit of this and a little bit of that and you pull that that one component from one person but has there been anything for you in particular across the entire journey that has been i guess just this really incredibly valuable experience that just kind of helps guide you in the way you go about your work you as an individual um i think it's really just down to being honest with myself about what i can and can't do yep. and being okay to admit my weaknesses um because i can't grow as a person nor can the company and that's you know that's kind of a guiding principle i need to to keep and take with me is the company is bigger than just any one person it's a number you know a number of people now and so it's only ever going to be as good as what people can be willing to talk about yep. and so you know that's strengths that's weaknesses it's whether you think the idea is bad you know all these things they need to be discussed because you know it's bigger than one person and so i can't hide behind myself because that's not that's not doing justice to anybody else. And so that's been probably the biggest lesson that I've picked up in, in the more recent years. No, fantastic to hear. And a couple of light ones as we wrap things up. If you could be credited for any game in any capacity, so you can just retroactively add your name into the credits and claim some sort of responsibility for it, what game would you pick? Oh man, what game would I pick? new old it doesn't matter what sort yeah. of game it is nor the capacity it could be as simple as special thanks even you know probably it sounds really weird but i would say probably katamari damacy yeah no that's a really really cool quirky title too yep uh, it, it, it's fun it's quirky it's just it's such it, it, it's an amazing game for what it is i love it and it's I, I have no real context to say it's an inspiration for anything, but it is such an awesome game. I love it. The music, the style, all of it. So it'd probably be Katamari. And uh, I referenced this before the show, but the streak is broken. We've had a lot of developers recently talking about Journey as being that game. So it is no offense to that game company, everything they've done, but it is nice to see someone else uh, talk about another game. So <laughs> thank you for, and Katamari <laughs> is a fantastic title. So I don't blame you in the slightest. If you could go and re like strike a game from your memory and get to re replay it, experience the game for the first time all over again, is there a game that springs to mind that you just love to be able to do that with? Um, 
whether it's because there's a really impactful story for example or, or something like that I think I would probably honestly like to get my first experience going back into an MMO as a fresh player, going back like into EverQuest and just playing that from from the eyes of, you know, of of where your reference is at in the time. Not now, but just, you know, at the time it was amazing and you know, this this access to all these people all over the world playing together and those sorts of things are just I mean that's that's the stuff that makes technology so friggin' amazing. Yeah. And so, you know, and you know, now that's kind of, you know, now that's kind of just passe. Everybody makes an MMO now, basically, you know, like, um, in a way, yeah. Um, but, you know, going back, I, I you know, I, I'm not necessarily even just re- replaying it for the first time, but I would probably enjoy resetting my, my entire mindset to back at that point in time when I picked it up as well, too, because that was, you know, at the time, that was just amazing. Yeah, f- f- fantastic choice. So, look, I mean, should, uh, we obviously kind of made a little quip before about World of Warcraft and that sort of thing. Like, I personally didn't wade too deeply into MMOs. I could see how these things would grab me and I would just fall down the well, and so I avoided them. But I always really appreciated what what they were from afar, very consciously from afar. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, oh, no, you you probably um, saved yourself and maybe a few uh, a few a few grades um, by yeah, doing quite possibly, that. yeah. The the, te- the teacher in me really appreciates the decision making I made when I was thirteen or whatever. Um, we've obviously mentioned Grow. The game is available now. Grow Song of the Ever Tree. It's on e- basically every platform that you would like to play it on. So please make sure to do that. I will attest personally. The game is fantastic, chock full of charm. It's a beautiful looking game. Some fantastic systems, and as we've discussed, it's kind of a reverse Harvest Moon in a really really cool way. So absolutely go and check that out but if if people want to learn more about grow or what you are up to what the studio is up to where would they be best to go oh and say twitter but i apologize we're pretty um we're a very quiet company when it comes to anything um social media or otherwise um i mean twitter is where we're at and that's probably where we make the most noise but we're not a big noise making company sorry no that's fine that's still when when you know an announcement happens about whatever game comes next or yeah whatever the case happens to be uh so is that at prideful sloth yeah yeah so so make sure to check out the twitter handle there and and you'll see some fantastic updates as they emerge whenever those might be and i for one am really excited for the day that we hear about whatever that next title happens to be obviously i'd imagine right now there's still a little bit of a, a coming down from from grow up to a point um but I, i'm really really excited to see whatever comes next for for the studio for you as an individual what you have done has been incredible across a host of different studios across across continents working on some really cool games and really cool people and i just i want to congratulate you on everything you've done so far and i really do look forward to what is to come next thank you very much appreciate it no. and of course thank you so much for coming on the show as well thank you for having me um Listeners, that's the end of our episode. Thank you very much for listening. Again, Cheryl, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye.
That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until next time, however, that's been Cheryl's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.